Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Brian here and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today with me, I have Lexi, is it Lamey? Yes. Lamey. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to just say Lamey and it be wrong and then sound right. completely dumb, but we're glad that you're here with us today and uh, going to share with, with us your story. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Are you from here in central Arkansas? So I'm actually from Jonesboro. I'm or, sorry. Right. Jones Boogie, <laughs> as I call it. So I was born in Little Rock, but at three years old, we moved to Jonesboro and I was there until I was 16. So Jonesboro is where I grew up. So how far back do you want me to go? Just elementary school, middle school, high school. Tell us kind of what life was like then. Okay. So my father was a carpenter and my mother was always in some sort of office secretarial position. So we lived kind of a um, an average life financially, economically, and we went to school, my sister and I, and I was an athlete and I did well academically as as well. So those were my things. My dad was very hard on me. He really pushed me extremely strict, but I'm thankful for that because I believe that that is part of the reason why I am the way that I am today as far as being disciplined and have any sort of, you know, positive things in my life. But so let's see, there was a bit of a mess in the background of our life at at all times. So just a little side note, my biological father is from the Middle East. So he was a Jordanian and he and my mother married. He was a bodybuilder. And when I was three, they got a divorce and I haven't seen him since. And since at that moment, I think it was three, four years old, my mom met who I considered to be my dad and he adopted me. So when I mentioned my father, this is my dad that adopted me. Sure, sure. And um, anyway, so we ended up moving to Jonesboro. We lived an average life, I would say, but my parents had their struggles just like any other parents did, you know. We struggled with having peace and stability in the home at times as far as just emotionally, mentally. I didn't really realize until I got older and became an adult that my my mother had her own issues going on, but we all do, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, at nine years old, I was told, um, I, I was asked by my parents, do you want a little sister? And I was like, sure. And they were like, well, it turns out um, that your dad has a daughter that he didn't know about. Mm. So DHS from Florida reached out to my dad and said, you have a daughter that's been in foster care. And my sister Morgan came to live with us when I was nine. And at the same time, my brother was coming to us every other weekend. So we kind of had a blended family growing up, lived out in the country. You know, like I said, my parents had their issues, but we had a pretty average life. And um, 
as I continued to get a little older, I started having these issues with panic attacks and just like really severe anxiety. I would say that was 10, 11 years old, and it would keep me out of school days at a time. So my mother would have to take me to the emergency room. I would break out into hives, swell up, kind of become delirious. It would be over the most minor things that I would freak out about. Say I left my basketball shoes in the locker room, was thinking someone would steal them, I made a B on a test. I mean, I would just freak out. So there was something that caused the anxiety. It wasn't just there. Right. There was, okay. Right. Yes, for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, it was always triggered by something. And at that point, my mother started taking me to doctors, psychologists, you know, therapists, things like that. And I was, I don't remember the exact diagnosis, but I do know that I was like diagnosed to be mentally unstable around that age. And I started to be medicated. And um, I've been on just about every medication you could think of, uh, Lexapro, Zoloft, Wellbutrin, Abilify, Latuda, Xanax, you name it. And all that started at 10, 11 years old. I would take my happy pill in the morning before I go to school and just kind of depended on that, even as a child, not realizing, you know, that, that I that it wasn't just the medication that I needed, because I do think that medications are needed for many people, but I also needed stability in my life and I needed, I needed Jesus, Mm. honestly. So Uh, stability is such a major thing. And Mm. uh, sometimes we use the word stability when what we actually mean is structure. Yes. And so that, Mm. that we know what's going on in life and and what I found is not just in your what you would call a nuclear family, but in your blended family, it's hard to have structure because, you know, like you said, your brother only came every other weekend mm-hmm. or something like that. So yes. it, it was kind of hard to have that everyday routine within yes. family. And now, I, I'm sorry, I'm you, just going to go be ahead. completely honest. I don't think that my family would ever listen to this, but <laughs> so I'm just going to be completely honest. My parents fought bad. Mm. I mean, just like holes in the wall, doors coming off the hinges. Mm. It was physical. Was it physical to other things or physical to each other as well? Physical just to other things. Okay. You know, I remember. My grandparents for Christmas one year giving me a huge pair of earmuffs and saying, this is what, here's your Christmas present. Put this on when your parents fight and, you know, to try to keep the noise and from, you know, to keep me from really focusing on it and things of that sort. And my mother, you know, had issues with her prescriptions. And then we, my sister and I, or I know for sure I, found myself in some odd situations with an uncle when Mm. I was being babysat at times. So I think kind of being within some of those traumatic moments, you know, it affected me deeply. And I know that in Ephesians, you know, in Ephesians 6, it says that Christ makes his home in our heart. So if our heart is supposed to be a home and if Jesus is supposed to live there, then if Jesus is not living there, then who is living there? And, and and I think that as a young girl, I had different things living in my heart, such as fear, anxiety, sure. trauma, things of that nature. So did, did these kind of, we'll say trauma, did that happen and was going on prior to the anxiety that you experienced? Or did it kind of 
mingle together. Mingled together. Okay. So once you, I guess it was 11-ish, 10, 11-ish that you started uh, being on medication. Do you remember how you felt when you heard that you were mentally unstable? Embarrassed. Mm. Because on top of that, I was also wearing a back brace. Mm. I was um, often asked why I looked different than my mom. As a young girl, I was very dark-skinned, and mm. I looked extremely foreign. And when my my mom or my sister were around, you know, I didn't really look like them. And, um, you know, all the other kids would ask me, why do you look different? And then also I developed faster than most people, um, in my grade and I was always taller than the boys. So I just felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb in general, Mm -hmm. you know? So here's one more thing that just makes me weird Mm. type thing. Yeah. You know, I think it's important, um, for us to be careful how we label things, especially with adolescents, Mm. uh, to use term like mentally ill. I, I remember growing up, I had a really good friend that, and we went to church together and, at school and at church, everything, you know, seemed fine. But one day <clears throat> we heard that this young man went to see a psychiatrist in Little Rock. We grew mm-hmm. up in Boonville, small town America, uh, oh, to, wow. about two and a half hours from here. And I remember going, a psychiatrist, he must have, he must has lost his mind. Why would, and then, you know, everybody's like, well, so what's going on? Da, da, da. And then they came back and they said, well, he has a chemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, I, I remember as a child going, oh my gosh, he's never going to be normal. I, they're probably right. going to put him in a home somewhere where today we know that chemical imbalance is just about any mental health condition, oh, yeah. you know, for sure. Uh, how our brain kind of adapts to modify and help us through trauma that then gives us issues in other places. Now, with your anxiety, you said that you you broke out in hives. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, did you say you kind of shook sometimes? Did you say that? Or you know, thinking about it, I don't think that I did. I'm sure that um, I'm sure I would get shaky at times, mm-hmm. but did you ever pass out? No, I never did pass out. Okay, but even to this day, when I experience anxiety now, which I've learned to manage it to a certain degree, and still working on it, mm. honestly. Um, we all are. Right, yeah. right. It's It was almost as if something was sitting on my chest mm-hmm. type thing, kind of difficult yeah. to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which which is important to note. Once again, I'm not a medical doctor, but a, a female is very rarely uh, found to be having a heart attack when they have chest pain. So if, if you're listening and you're having chest pain and you're female, of course, go to the doctor uh, but most of the time, uh, it could be some kind of anxiety mm-hmm. issue, or you know, gas, heartburn, that kind of right, that kind of right. thing. But that heaviness on your chest, even knowing that mm. you have anxiety, sometimes makes your anxiety worse, mm-hmm. and you need to go, you know, get checked out just to yeah. make make sure other things aren't going going wrong. But you never had those moments of passing out. Never had uh, any type of retrograde amnesia where you just did not remember what happened. None of that. No, thank goodness. Okay. They put you on all this medicine, and how did that kind of make you feel? I know sometimes there's a reason they call it practicing medicine. Right. Because we're practicing on Mm -hmm. what works for you. Uh, And so 
you know, sometimes you get on something, you feel like a zombie and that sort of thing, or other drugs like Wellbutrin gives you a little bit of pep. And, and so how do you, how did you feel being the guinea pig of let's see what works? I wish I could remember, you know, it's hard to describe a feeling when it's all that you ever knew. Right. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So I was medicated from 10 years old to 21, always on some sort of just concoction of antidepressants and mood stabilizers. So Your cocktail is what we yes, call them. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And once again, I just want to be clear that I don't think that medication is wrong. I just think that I, I needed something in addition sure. to the medication. But I can honestly say today, I take nothing. So I... I the only thing that I do take is is for my thyroid, and I know that you know thyroid can affect your mood as well if you don't take care of it. But it's all I ever knew, and I do remember as a young person, like if I forgot to take my medicine in the morning, I would freak out and just assume that I would be doomed that day, and you know, so that kind of began that mindset, that paradigm began to set in even sixth grade. You know, yeah. You know, with adolescent therapy, what what is done a lot, because you said it's hard to describe it when it's all you ever know, mm-hmm. is we ask them to describe it by telling us about a scene that happened in a movie of how did you feel, you know, like uh, when Snow White was was laid out there and Prince Charming was there, is that the emotion that you felt? You know, to try to relate that emotion to what was going on there. So it, it is very difficult uh, for children to try to explain. Uh, and I do think it's important to note that behavior in adolescence is words. So you kind of got to look, and even in adults in a lot of ways, if you look at their behavior, they're really trying to tell you something that they don't know how to communicate. But I could only imagine for you is at that age that it was a very scary, scary time for you. My personality is is always been pretty just kind of laid back. And if I'm not laid back, then I'm super nervous and I'm anxious. So I was I remember it's funny that you're asking for a memory because this actually came to mind a few weeks ago. I remember being in a room with other girls. This was probably like sixth grade and thinking to and watching these other girls be happy and laugh and kind of be carefree to a certain degree. And I remember thinking to myself, I wish that I could be happy like that and have fun like that. But I was always so serious. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, like my boss one time, she was like, Lexi, I just wish that you wouldn't take things so serious. And that's my issue. Mm -hmm. You know, even as a young person, I was just so in a box emotionally. And looking back now, that may have been the medication, you know, or it may have just been my personality that just kind of being locked down by fear that I wanted to just stay safe in a corner type thing emotionally and mentally. Yeah. So a lot of people with anxiety kind of want to live inside that box because there's security there. Mm -hmm. And to venture outside of that and, you know, be carefree Mm -hmm. is a very anxious place for us to be, whether we cognitively realize that or not. Right. It's a, it's a very scary 
scary place to be. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have had people tell me too, can you just not be so serious? Uh, <laughs> or they'll say, when you when you say something, we can't tell if you're joking or if you're serious. Uh-huh. And, and I, you know, I think some of us are just made that way. You know, that's just how and, we've been uniquely designed yes. to be. And I did my Enneagram thingy, Majigger, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I think I'm a I did like the Christian version mm-hmm. of Enneagram, which they're all right, regardless mm-hmm. of it's Christian or not. But within the Christian one, it kind of shows you your spiritual gifts and things mm-hmm. like that following it. And I think I was a two, mm-hmm. which was a moral perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Lord. It's called a persister. Okay, a persister. Which which sounds bad. But literally what it means is that you have this line you're not going to cross. Right. And no matter what it is, this is your line in the sand. So my wife is a persister, and she won't listen to this podcast either, so I can tell this. <laughs> uh, but if I want her to do something, and this really sounds like manipulation and probably surface level is, but sure. if, if I really want her to do something like um, – well, for instance, her mother, they live in, in Salisaw, Oklahoma. So it's a good three hours from mm-hmm. here. Well, her mother will call my son, who's now six, and say things like, do you want to come to Mammals this weekend? And he'll get all excited and say, yeah. And she'll say, well, you can come to Mammals, okay? And mm-hmm. okay. And then I'm like, oh, how is he going to get there? Mm-hmm. You know? And so uh, there was this one particular weekend I was going to be gone and mm-hmm. I really didn't want my wife and son to be at home by themselves. Right. And so uh, I said, well, Memo said that he could go to her house and told him that he would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, we cannot teach our son that if you say something, you don't really have to follow through. And you're a really good mother. And I really don't want you to allow your mother to teach him that that's an okay behavior. So I think probably what you should consider Mm -hmm. is to go ahead and take him, but be very clear to your mother that this isn't the appropriate way to communicate ever again. Right. And she did not want to go. Like before this, we'd had this whole conversation Mm -hmm. about, I don't want to go anywhere this weekend. I'm tired. After I said that, it was like a light went off and she's like, you're right. I need to take him. And so, um, but Mm -hmm. I was able to, it's a lot like... uh, Chapman's uh, The Five Love Languages, Mm -hmm. is that you can receive it in that manner. Um, Mm -hmm. And so surface level manipulation, but but it works. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it it is one of those things. So uh, within within that persistra, though, uh, that that would make sense even in adolescence, because you were you were somewhat indoctrinated, I guess, to believe that there was a very clear line in the sand of what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable, even though around you was all kinds of things that wasn't acceptable. And you probably didn't realize, maybe, I'm going to step out on a limb here, you probably didn't realize that it wasn't normal for parents to fight. Maybe to not that extreme, but I did when I started going to my friends' houses. Right, right. Things of that sort. But yes, oh, mm-hmm. for sure. And, you know, just I, even to this day, 26 years old, I thrive within structure and organization, mm-hmm. which is why my job that I currently have right now is the hardest thing on the planet for me because 
it has to be spontaneous. Mm-hmm. You know, working with people that are recovering from drugs and alcohol, there's spontaneity all over the or spontaneity, however you say it, mm-hmm. it's all over the place because you never know when someone needs to go to the ER or when this person has, you know, gotten sick or this person needs help because they're in in an emotional crisis. Like there is no structure because you're dealing with human beings that are in their most vulnerable, fragile, destructive place of their life. But, you know, another thing also, and this is not me trying to blame my parents at at, at all. I'm so over being the person that shares their testimony and is saying, I fell into addiction because my parents weren't good parents. Mm. I'm so over that. Yeah. The reason why I became an addict is based on my own poor choices and my own stupidity. Mm-hmm. You know, there is nothing else other than that. But my father was, he drilled it into me. You are going to make straight A's. You are going to be the best athlete there's nothing outside of that. Mm -hmm. So I had those goals for myself and by golly, I was going to achieve them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that as well. I myself personally put that pressure on myself. It's Mm -hmm. not my dad's fault. He was being a good father pushing me. Yeah. So uh, what he taught you was this is the limit. This is what acceptable and this is what is not acceptable. Yes. And so then I wonder, and I once again not placing blame, right? But I wonder if because of that being instilled in you is the reason that you became so anxious when you left your shoes at the gym in the locker room. Oh yes. And so what had happened was, while it is healthy to have structure, mm-hmm. um, sometimes we can get so structured that we forget to just have Lexi time mm-hmm. and just do whatever it is that that we want to do, right? And sometimes as kids, we're forced to grow up real quick, you know, yes. in those situations. And speaking of that, I'll just go ahead and go ahead and fast forward yeah, and sure. get through all the, you know, I call it my BC days, my before <laughs> Christ days. So at 15, we got word that my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And in less than a year, he passed away. Mm. So that was like super sudden and kind of out of nowhere. So he was this big, burly, handsome man you know, tall, dark, and handsome and um, built houses. He was the rock of our family. And he just kind of disappeared when he passed away. It's what it felt like to me, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, I do have clear, vivid memories of him being sick because he went from being like, say, 250 pounds to I'm sure he got down to like probably 180 within six months. I mean, I watched my father's body turn gray due to the chemo and radiation. And, you know, I'm waking up early to go to basketball practice at 15 and I'm waking up to the stench of the vomit in the next room from him throwing up. So, you know, and my mom was basically his nurse the whole time, took care of him. And she ended up being widowed at 40 years old. My father was 36 when he passed. And that was super traumatic. Sure. But what was even more traumatic. <laughs> and once again, this is not to dishonor my mother at all. I, I believe that it, when I share my testimony, I share her testimony as well. But uh, what was even more traumatic than watching my father die was watching my mother 
my mother's heart be broken following that and watching her mentally lose her mind. Mm -hmm. So it was at that point when he died that she began to mix uh, the prescription pills with alcohol. And I say this uh, not in a way for people to feel sorry for me, but at 16, I became my mother's mother. And uh, our whole life turned upside down. We no longer saw my brother anymore because he didn't have reason to because my dad, my dad was dead. And uh, so it became my sister and I and my mom. And my mom adopted my sister when she came out of foster care. So uh, we got a ton of insurance money, blew through it super quick, and um, ended up really not being able to keep the lights on, ended up moving from Jonesboro to Searcy and uh, to kind of start over, I guess you could say. And my poor mom was just really struggling. And I think that it was at that point when I left everything behind, you know, of course I have a boyfriend at that point and I'm like leaving him behind and I'm thinking my life is over and leaving my sports and volleyball, basketball, track, everything that I'd known and um, going to Cersei, that's when I was just like, screw everyone and everything. And that's when I kind of started a party. And uh, so when we moved to Cersei, my amazing aunt and uncle lived there and placed my sister and I in a private Christian academy. And within six months, I was kicked out. So just staying the night with boys, drinking, partying, things like that. And uh, so that was super embarrassing to get kicked out of this school so quickly. And a lot of people know my family within this town. So it was, you know, shame. I, I, I was ashamed of myself. And then I ended up graduating from Searcy High School in 2013 and just continued to play sports and do decently well, but all the while just really starting to party in a way that was beginning to not just be fun, but damaging mm -hmm. and um, ended up getting a full ride scholarship to Arkansas State. I was able to get into a really good sorority. I got into x-ray school super quick because I had all these concurrent credits and things looked good on the outside, but really I had a whole nother life going on when I would go back to my dorm room and I was taking an enormous amount of Xanax at the time, smoking weed. And at that point, um, I was starting to take Roxy's. So I would get done with all of my schoolwork and all that stuff because I'm still perfectionist Lexi at that point. But uh, was just I started taking these uh, these opiates. And it was, I figured out real quick, the best thing I'd ever experienced. Super fun for a long time. Felt great. Gave me an out from reality, and um, but it continued to get worse, and I started getting arrested. Mm. If you Google my name, you're going to see a lot of different charges um, just from like a four-year period of me building a criminal record, and I was thought I was, you know, fine, but really I wasn't started dating my drug dealers and things like that and quickly um, lost everything, lost all my scholarships, was uh, kicked out of my sorority. You know, I was doing clinicals in x-ray school and they were like, we're noticing that you're nodding off in class and then you're wired the next day. What's the deal? Well, it's because I was juggling Adderall Vivance with Oxys mm. and I was just going up and down. Trying Which is very dangerous. Super. I, I mean, to this day, I'm surprised I'm alive. Hmm. And, you know, and then at that point, I'm like being introduced to meth and ice and things like that, just from partying. 
on campus and as well as selling pills like uh, my boyfriend and I would sell to most of the athletes when they needed Vyvanse, Adderall, Xanax or whatever. And um, it all really came to a head super quick. I really, looking back now, you know, God was after me for sure, especially in me getting arrested. And uh, I thank God for being arrested. I thank God for consequences and confinement or else I wouldn't be alive. And I always say that I wasn't arrested. I was rescued. Mm. You know, in Second Samuel twenty two twenty, it says he rescued me because he delighted in me. And um, I didn't mention this, but at I think it was eight years old. I every now and then we would go to this Baptist church with uh, my parents and my grandparents. And at eight years old, my nana led me to Christ. And I repeated the sinner's prayer and got baptized. And and I dare to say that I had saving faith back mm. then and uh, and that my story is that of a prodigal. And I think that uh, that God chased me down the whole time. And it makes me think of that song, Reckless Love, where uh, Corey Asbury writes, he chases, he chases me down, he fights till we're found, he leaves the 99. And I believe that the Lord was after me in that sense. And uh, I just kind of rejected that conviction and pushed it away long enough that uh, that I would kind of numb myself out of it through getting arrested. You know, I think I got a, so a few different DUIs, theft of property, tent to distribute, possession charges, criminal trespass, you name it, just getting arrested for crazy things. And all the while, I'm like so embarrassed. You'd think that I would have stopped just from the fact of being embarrassed. But, you know, I even remember my mug shots being blasted on an app called Yik Yak. Mm. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Where you like log into your whatever university you're in and people anonymously like talk about you. And, um, you know, people saying, oh, she's so strung out and all these different things. And the crazy thing is, is I didn't even know what that meant. Mm -hmm. When I heard people tell me or talk about me and say that I was strung out, I'm like, what are they talking about? And I started taking a ton of Adderall and lost so much weight so quick because the opiates and the weed, I shot up in weight, gained a whole bunch of weight. And then I was like, well, I'm just going to take a ton of Adderall, lose this weight. And then, and people were asking me, are you okay? Are you sick? And I was so ignorant towards what I was doing that I had no idea what they were talking about. And then I'm going to this fraternity party and me and some of my uh, sorority sisters get pulled over and I get arrested for having Adderall in my wallet. And I'm like, why are you arresting me? You know, and I even say to the officer, my friend gave me these pills <laughs> and they're, and I'm like, I'm using them to study. I'm in school. And they're like, ma'am, you're being arrested for possession of meth or cocaine. I was like, meth? I don't do meth. You know, and I was so, I thought I was above the law. I didn't understand that I was basically taking meth in a pill form mm -hmm. to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. But um, I learned real quick, this is illegal. What you're doing is wrong. But yet I continued to do it. And uh, actually tried to take my life in my dorm room. I got in, into such a dark place, and that was what I got dismissed for. Like, if you try to kill yourself on campus, you're considered a liability to the university. Mm -hmm. So I was then, like, admitted to Which is crazy. Right. Yeah. The last thing that you want to do when you're at a point of where you want to kill yourself is to be kicked out of a university. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. But from an insurance standpoint. Right. I get it. Yeah. But yeah, still, yeah. 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 
So admitted to St. Bernard's Behavioral Health and then ended up having to go to several other mental health facilities. And I think at one point they were even going to start, um, I think it's called ECT therapy on me, mm-hmm. where they kind of- Electroconvulsive Yes. Therapy. And so here's this big, the big question amongst my family and amongst these people that love me, because here I am on homecoming, you know, and, at, and being an athlete in 2012, 2013, and then in 14, 15, 16, 17, I'm like- looking at going to prison and I'm an in addiction and everyone's like, the big question is how do we fix Lexi? Mm -hmm. So I go to a couple different rehabs, all secular, but nothing really worked for me until I got to the Harbor home. So do you remember the day that, that you were going to take your life or that you attempted? Do you remember much about that day? Yes, but it was, it was actually twice, two different incidences in, Crazy enough, yes, I remember. So could you kind of describe what was going on in your head or in your emotions at one of those periods? So the time that I was in Jonesboro on campus, I was in my quad and I tried to do it. What I did was I took all of the Xanax that I had, like a bottle of Xanax, because I was getting it prescribed and I was buying it from others. And I think I took all of my Zoloft and then I had some Roxy's or Oxy's, took those. I think that in my mind, I didn't fully understand or realize what I was doing because I'm pretty sure I was messed up to begin with. And what's crazy, like on a spiritual aspect, I never was scared that I would die and go to hell. (laughs) Like looking back now, I'm like, I should... What in the world was I thinking, you know, like, was I so sure about my eternal salvation or whatever? But I had no thought as to how would this affect my family? How would this affect me eternally? How would this affect me in the long run if I survive and I have like brain damage for the rest of my life? I was so stuck Mm -hmm. mentally that I couldn't think outside of myself. And... I was so stuck and I wasn't in my right mind. Mm-hmm. You know, do you know the story? I'm sure you do the, of the man that lived in the caves in the Bible mm-hmm. and J- Jesus calls him from the caves and delivers him from the legion of demons. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I had a legion of demons. I, I Lord, I don't even know, but mm-hmm. I had some issues. Well, and, I'll, uh, no, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I just love, I love the scripture in the NIV version where it says that, after Jesus delivered him, that he was clothed and in his right mind. Mm -hmm. And in the original language, that right mind phrase, it goes back to sozo and not just being saved sozo, but being saved mentally by Mm -hmm. Jesus. And I believe that that's what, that is the biggest thing that God has done for me from being diagnosed to be mentally unstable at 11 years old. Like the Lord has touched my mind in a way that it's been renewed. And I, I think that now some days I could question this, but <laughs> I the Lord... I think we all could some days right. question what we've got going on. Yes, but I wasn't in my right mind. So so taking off a therapy hat and putting on my pastoral hat, okay, I would say that people who get to that point are the people who have been convicted so much and pushed that conviction away, that then that's where Scripture talks about being in a retrograde mind and being given great delusion to believe the lie. 
Yes. And so that, you know, that kind of gets where we're at. But at the same time, if we push all religion out of it, we can say, uh, as I did with another uh, person on the show, is that that person was not Lexi. That's yeah. that's not who you were. And, it, you know, once again, a side of, of religion, you know, because being regenerated in Christ, we obviously mm-hmm. aren't the old person we've you know, been raised to live anew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mentally, we're not who we were. You know, your family would look at you and go, well, that's not like Lexi. Mm-hmm. And what they were meaning to say is that's not Lexi. Mm-hmm. Lexi wouldn't do that. And right. it's because we are not mentally that person. But uh, in, in a lot of times in addiction, and this may or may not be your case, but mm-hmm. we feel like we're in control. Mm-hmm. And that 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 structure is there, even though it's not structured. You know, I know that I can take yeah. this pill and feel this way, or take this pill and feel this way. Yeah. But you get to a point where it doesn't work anymore. Right. 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 And so then you then you get to the point of to the point of saying, okay, I've got to get help, or to a point of trying to take your life. Hmm. You said there were two times where they both overdose attempts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So had something taken place, you know, were you arrested right before something like that happened? Had had something brought you to that point or was it just you come to the realization that I can't go on this way? I think that there was an incident from both moments. The one that I just described, I don't remember what happened, but I'm sure there was something because I was living a life of chaos and there was something huge happening every other week. The second incident, I was living with a crazy guy. And this was after I had already been dismissed and I was trying to get back into school and things of that sort. And I was, I'd come back to Cersei and I had a boyfriend at the time that I had moved in with. And we had an apartment together and he was saying that he was going to leave me. And that was that I think that in addition to just partying and being out of my mind and being super depressed and hating myself and being ashamed of who I'd become and losing everything. That was the incident the second time. Yeah. And, you know, with addicts, it's it's unique in that a lot of times their breaking point is the fear of losing somebody that they thought would never walk away. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's whether it be a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or even parents that say, hey, we're done with you. We're mm-hmm. not going to do this anymore. And I don't want to use the word weird, but that's the only word that comes to mind right now, mm-hmm. that we are willing to throw everything else away. Oh, it's so weird. But yeah. this one individual who you probably hadn't known very long, uh, yeah. that boyfriend, you were just devastated that he would even consider leaving. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So can I ask you a spiritual question? Sure. Okay. And this is kind of going backwards. Okay. So I used to think that like what happened to me at eight years old, nine years old, as far as getting saved, quote unquote, mm-hmm. I used to think, oh, I don't even know if that was real, you know, like... Because when I came to the Harbor Home, I really, like, I really laid my life down before God and was like, all right, I surrender, I commit to you. And then today marks, or not today, but like at this point, it's like been five years that I've been sober walking with God. But I've been having conversations 
with people recently. And I'm also getting a, um, so I'm like a year away from having a degree at Central Baptist College okay. in leadership and ministry, mm-hmm. which is equivalent to a Bible degree. But I have really been wrestling with my salvation experience as a young girl. So I, I'm just going to say, you know, give you a little bit of like what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. then I want to know what you think. Okay. Okay. And please be honest, you're okay. not going to hurt my feelings. Sure. Okay. As a Baptist minister. <laughs> so at eight years old, when I, as I remember it, I knelt at an ottoman with my Nana and I repeated after her. And then like a week later I got baptized. And for me at eight years old, I know that it was as real as it could be. Mm-hmm. And with my eight year old mind. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it needed to be done and I knew that it was right. And we weren't going to church every Sunday by any means. We probably went once a month, once every two months. I knew that God was right, but it's not like we were reading the Bible at home. I never read the Bible at home type thing. That was as real as it was. And we would say our prayers sometimes at night anyways, but not really, you know, type thing. And um, when I got to the Harbor home and I really started living for the Lord, in my mind, I thought, I've never been saved. This is the first time I've ever been saved. But recently, I think I heard someone in a message say, you know, I had saving faith when I was a young child, but I didn't really start making Christ Lord until I was in my 30s. Mm -hmm. When I tried to take my life, I'm so shocked that I wasn't scared that I would go to hell. And this is kind of a crazy question, but I oftentimes wonder what would have happened to me if I really would have died? Would that saving faith that was that quote unquote saving faith that I got at eight years old, would that have followed me? And I know that you can't tell me if you know one way or the other, but I'm sure that you have that question well, sometimes. Here's what I believe from okay. a from religious aspect. If you asked for forgiveness, mm-hmm. you confessed him as Lord, mm-hmm. um, and you believed in him. You admit you're a sinner. Uh, you believe in your heart upon the Lord Jesus Christ that God has raised him from the dead. Mm-hmm. You confess him as Lord, then you're saved. And from what you said, it was real. And I did you all that it. as a young girl, yes. Okay. And so then the book of James says that when we receive the the Lord as our Savior, we also then receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, yes. which is the guarantor of mm-hmm. our salvation. Mm-hmm. So then Jesus said in John, that which my Father has given me, Mm. can no man take away, Mm. not even my Father, Mm. for the Father and I are one. Mm. So if you received saving faith, as you, as you, that's what the term you use, right? Sure. If, yes. Uh, Yeah. At the age of eight, then that would carry through until all of the, you know, until eternity. The thing is, is that there is a difference between sanctification and justification, Mm-hmm. When we're saved, we receive justification, just as if mm-hmm. I had never sinned. Mm-hmm. But sanctification is a progressive work. Right. Just like a drug addict can get saved. Well, if they go tomorrow and they use drugs, are they not saved? Not necessarily because they're addicted. I mean, it is a, while it is in in a lot of ways a stronghold that mm-hmm. could be used from the enemy, there is a medical side of it. You know, you have mm-hmm. to detox. You have to get it out of your body. Just because I'm saved doesn't mean I don't sin. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that comes in the difference between a lifestyle of sin and sinning, you know, of where is that commingled together. But to answer your question, 
there is only one thing that will send you to hell, and that's lack of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, and I, I don't mm-hmm. like saying this, but a Christian can commit suicide mm-hmm. and will go to heaven. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is, is that there is, and standing here, sitting here today, there's nothing that could keep you from being a mass murderer if that's what you wanted to be. Right. The only thing keeping you from that is the grace of Jesus Christ, that mm-hmm. you don't allow yourself to drift into that mm-hmm. mentality. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, when it comes down to it, when we think of it that way, that's why we can have grace on people that mm. other people wouldn't say they deserve it. Right. Because it's these times that we've gone through that helps us manifest our faith to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in a traditional sense, once again, outside of religion, sharing your story mm-hmm. and giving somebody hope, it may be the one thing that triggers them to say, yes, there is hope. Yes, I can do this. Yes, I can get through. And that's why, you know, in therapy, what we do, talk therapy, is we try to get you to tell your story so that we can unpack each and every little thing Mm -hmm. so that, and I get a lot of flack for saying this, but depression is just the symptom of overthinking when when you bowl it all the way down. Now, Mm -hmm. there are chemical aspects to it, but when we speak those things, you've probably had this before. You go home to your husband and you say, I've had a terrible day. He says, okay, tell me what happened. You tell him, and he goes, well, that really doesn't sound that bad. And he repeats back to you what you said, (laughs) and you go, well, the way you say it, no, it wasn't that bad. But it's all about our perspective and how we look at things and how we receive things. So uh, to answer your question, uh, I would believe, yes, you would would have gone to heaven. So even though I had the retrobate mind, as Mm -hmm. you said, Mm -hmm. gotcha. Mm -hmm. Because you can't be taken from his hand. Nothing. What is it? Nothing can snatch them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. So, in moving forward, you went mm-hmm. to Harbor Home. Yes. And which is a religious uh, affiliated mm-hmm. uh, rehab facility. Yes, in Conway. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And so, is it co-ed? Can both women and men go, or is it just for women? It's just for women, and we're located inside of a church. And I work there now. I am the face two director there. So, it is a six month to a year long program. So you basically commit your entire life to it for six months to a year, and you live there. Um, and for phase one, which is the first six months, you don't have a cell phone, you don't have a job, you're not driving anywhere. You basically um, are confined to the property, but it's not like we're a prison. There's no barbed wire fence like anyone mm-hmm. could leave at any point if they wanted to. Right. Um, I would say like half of the girls are court ordered. Half of them are there on their own. So I did have uh, pending charges going in, but I was not court ordered. So mm-hmm. I was uh, I was mom ordered. <laughs> my my mother at that point, she had gotten a lot better mentally, emotionally. Um, you know, she had her struggles, but she through by the grace of God, she really overcame a lot in that season and was able to help me 
get the help that I needed. And, um, and she dropped me off and I hated her for it in the moment, but I just thank her for it now. And so I was there for nine months. The program was a little different back then. Phase one was just nine months and I just did phase one. And basically it is a faith-based recovery home. And if anyone's heard of Renewal Ranch, we're kind of the women's version of that, except we're a lot smaller. So there's only 10 girls in phase one and eight girls in phase two. So I like to think of us more of like a family rather than a facility. Mm-hmm. But the theme of the entire program is Jesus and kind of looking to him in a way that your personal relationship with him kind of sets you free from yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure I can speak for others on this, that I was my own God. I was my own leader. I was my own savior. I lived based off what Lexi wanted to do. And, you know, I didn't really have a lot of church experience going into this. I just kind of turned my nose up to it to a certain degree because I felt like God had kind of screwed me over, you know, but once I was in the program for like a month and I kind of detoxed off everything because at that point I was uh, doing fentanyl patches and suboxone strips. Mm. So I was totally just inebriated like at that, you know, Xanax was, couldn't touch what I was doing at that point. Anyways, after about a month, I really started taking notice to the fact that here I am once again in a setting where all of these girls around me are laughing and having fun and are somewhat being carefree. And here I am being depressed and serious, Mm -hmm. you know, a similar situation that I was in, you know, as a young girl. And I'm like, you know what, whatever they have, I want it. And Mm -hmm. they were experiencing the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, those things. And, and, um, so I started quote unquote, working the program, you know, really applying myself in the classes and listening to the sermons and involving myself in the daily worship and things like that. And I like to say that God just happened to me. The God thing, it just happened to me. I wasn't even looking for it. I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know what I wanted. But Jesus became everything that I didn't know that I ever needed or ever wanted. All of the partying, all of the guys, all of the damage from like my past and just the grief from my father and the sadness of watching my mother's heart be broken. There was something about having this relationship with an invisible person named Jesus. There was something about that that just kind of brought wholeness into my life. And during that season, I was kind of able to pinpoint the roots of my issues and kind of take notice to what it is that wounded me, and then from there walk out of my woundedness into the wholeness that God had for me. And then from that, it just kind of fanned a flame to want to help others with some of the same issues, and that's where I'm at today. Gotcha. Now, you had mentioned that you did other rehabs before Yes. this. Mm -hmm. What was? Why did the other ones not work for you? You know, I always say that... If you really want it, it'll work regardless of where you're at. But I think in that sense, I didn't just need coping skills or confinement, but I needed a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. I needed something bigger than myself to come in and save me. And more than that, I also needed hope. 
You know, I needed to be in a spiritual environment where I was told that there was hope for my future. You know, why would anyone want to get clean and stay sober if they're not hopeful for their life? You know, I might as well just stay high. It's a lot better that way. Right. But then once I was able to get into the, a spiritual environment where I was taught the word of God and I was told that God had a Jeremiah 29, 11 plan for me, for I know the plans that I have for Lexi declares the Lord plans to prosper her, not to harm her, plans to give her a hope and a future. I was like, so you're telling me that even though I have a criminal record, I'll never be able to be everything that I wanted to be career-wise due to my mistakes. You're telling me that even though I've embarrassed myself, lost everything that I worked so hard for, possibly may not have a driver's license for several years, may not ever be able to really make something of my life that I thought I was able to, you're still telling me that I have a hope and a future? You know, and these people, they were like, yes, based off of the word of God and what Jesus did for us on the cross, there's still hope for you. And it was as if a light turned on mm. and I actually started to believe it for myself. Yeah. Hope is the big thing. Yeah. We all need something to look forward to, right. whatever that may be, uh, something that, that we are just looking forward, whether it be a vacation, whether it be a trip, whether it be seeing a loved one. For instance, we wanted to go see our parents and they lived in France. Mm -hmm. We know that that's probably not ever going to be obtainable to get there because of our current income situation. Mm -hmm. But if something happens that gives us a little bit of hope, then everything changes. And it, and it just has to be a little bit of hope. Hope is so powerful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this question. Do you think that you could have gotten clean without the religious experience? Yes. Okay. I'm glad you said yes. Uh, so we're going to talk more about that in part two here of Doc Talks DX. Thank you for being here with us on Doc Talks, Lexi. It's good to have you with us. And uh, of course, she's going to continue here with Doc Talks DX on Patreon. So hopefully you will subscribe to us there, hear the rest of, of this story. And we're going to talk a little bit about addiction and anxiety and all the things that encompass the mental health aspect of, of addiction. So Lexi, tell us what resource, if, if which we're in central Arkansas here. Mm -hmm. So if you're a central Arkansas listener, uh, how would they contact uh, the the Harbor sure. House? So it's the Harbor Home. Har and uh, excuse the, me, the I'm Harbor sorry. Home. The reason why I'm so specific on that is because there is a Harbor House. There is. And in Conway as well. It's a, There used to be one in Fort Smith. Yeah, I, uh -huh. yeah, I think they have several different mm -hmm. locations. They're co-ed and they take insurance in mm -hmm. their secular facility. Right. Great facility. But we are the Harbor Home and we are a 501c3 nonprofit faith-based recovery home for women that struggle with drug and alcohol addiction. And you can call our office number, which can be answered from 8 to 5 Monday through Friday at 501-499-8622. And you can also like us on Facebook, The Harbor Home, or you can visit us on our website, www.theharborhome.com. All right. And where could they find you on social media? So, Lexi Lamey, L-E-X-I-L-A-M-E-Y, Facebook or Instagram. All so, right. All right. Well, hopefully our listeners will find you there. And, of course, you can find me at thedocbrian.com. All of my social media links are at the bottom of that page. Once again, follow us over onto Patreon as we talk about uh, the diagnosis side of addiction and anxiety 
and even to the result of, of suicide attempts. And hopefully you have enjoyed this podcast. Follow us over there. This is Doc Brian. We are a part of the Be Frank Network. You can find us all of our podcasts there at BeFrankNetwork.com. Once again, follow us to Patreon, Doc Talks DX, and we hope you have a great day.